0: Hey, everybody, welcome. This is Craig, and I'm the founder and president of the University of Applied Research and Development. And I'm um, so excited about our guest today that I had to cut off the countdown early. And so I want to welcome Marina Drasba. Great to have you with us.
1: Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me.
0: Oh, look, I'm excited because I was looking at your LinkedIn profile, and you and I have been going through and gone through our PhD program at the University of Auckland. And um, is that a chicken we can hear or a rooster in the background?
1: Yeah, it's
0: the Mother Clucker clan. Awesome, <laughs> that's
1: awesome. They, that's what
0: I've called them. <laughs> so this is live. So if the rooster goes again, everybody, you know that this is a live yes. interview with this incredible person who's making a difference in disaster reduction and also in climate change adaption. So Marina, why don't you introduce what you're doing and how you came to be there? Give us a little snapshot of your history.
1: So I'm currently working as a climate change advisor and disaster management um, for FAO. Um, and I've sort of come at this at a very roundabout way. I started as a geologist at College of Charleston in South Carolina, um, and my focus was always sort of landslides. Um, so I've always had an interest in how landslides propagate, how they move, uh, however, uh, the technical aspect is very fascinating, but repetitive for me and boring. Um, and so I always wanted to see how how landslides and society how they interact and how you can how you can make it better. Um, and so I got my master's at Portland State, looking at how you can map landslides and predict them, which using remote sensing, which is really interesting as well, but repetitive. And then it's It's very hard to do. It's very hard to get that nuance right. But the more people you talk to, I mean, if you talk to the geologist about landslides, and if they're not specifically focused on it, they get really bored with the subject. You can see people's eyes glaze over, even though I find it fascinating. Everybody's like, no, no, thank you. Um, But the same is true in society. Landslides are a problem that can do and do happen and occur because of human interaction. So how do you mitigate the human interaction aspect? Um, Large landslides, obviously, there's very little you can do to mitigate. However, smaller landslides are something that you can and should look into, you know, just having a a water spout or proper drainage in your property can help your neighbor and help yourself. Um, Which led me to uh, having a conversation with somebody at University of Auckland, uh, who was there to teach a disaster risk management course. And his, his name is Regan, Dr. Regan at the University of uh, uh, Victoria at Wellington. And he he went to the Rohingya camp cause he works for an organization called Red R or he's a, a, on the roster for Red R um, which deploy engineers to areas that need them such as like a refugee camp, uh, to the Red Cross, to the UN, and were sort of seconded in um, as, like, technical advisors. And so at the Rohingya refugee camp, he basically said, we need somebody like you, Uh, after sort of scoffing at me because he was like, "Mm." You know, landslides aren't really a DRM problem and nobody really thinks about them. That's fine, you know, because they're a secondary issue. People look at flooding, they look at fires, Mm -hmm. they look at other things. But landslides are caused by flooding. They're caused by fires. They're caused by a lot of other causal effects. Um, And then the refugee camp had a lot of landslide problems, which were directly linked to anthropogenic causes. And he brought me on. And that basically was the beginning of the end. And that's how I got here currently. and this is after 10 years of oil field work. So I worked on oil rigs uh, in the Gulf of Mexico, wow. in Africa, uh, and then worked as a consultant, a technical consultant, all over uh, all over Latin America, Europe. Uh, and then I worked on boats in Indonesia. So this was like 10 years of field work, technical consultant work, as a geologist looking at risks and hazards in the oil field.
0: Wow. And so... Um working in disaster risk reduction and climate change adaption
1: mm-hmm.
0: have you noticed being being an expert in this field have you noticed that climate change is having an impact on fire related disasters
1: I think I think the cycle is, At least in my personal framework, I think the cycle is that climate change is an overarching concept and the DRM concept fits underneath it because Uh climate change is exacerbating uh, issues where where Uh you would have low water. Now you have extreme low water and where you Uh have water, you might have extreme high water. Um, So I think the climate change issue is a longer term problem to solve which then sort of propagates DRM problems at, at, at other levels, where you might have drought, you have extreme drought. Um, and I think, I mean, last year, Death Valley hit 153 degrees uh, mm. Fahrenheit. Uh, don't know what that is in C, divide by three, multiply by two, or it's the opposite. Um, so, I mean, if you think about it, they, they, calculated, they calculated when, c- when places would hit extreme heat where you cannot go outside and last for more than a few minutes. And they were thinking 2060 you would see one or two places, but in 2021 there was already five places in the world that had extreme heat where you 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 as a human cannot survive. Mm. So that already is shortening the times time frame that we thought we had. Uh, Earth's earth is warming up and the water is warming up. And actually our waters are are sort of what cools us down. And if that's warming up, then we're not Mm -hmm. getting cooled down. So it's kind of a, I think there is a cause and effect and there's a lot of linkages to be made. Um, But I think one is overarching over the other and, and it sort of forces the other one to act quicker. So disastrous management, it makes us have to be more prepared all the time
0: right right and with with that with the um you know extreme heats um extreme water droughts you know with those extremes has there been a new taxonomy a new language a new way of describing this created
1: i would say that there is real well yes and no i think I think this is a problem with language. Unless language is universally accepted and everybody mm. uses the terminology, it mm. is confusing. Uh, if you don't, it's like going into a foreign country. If you don't speak the language, you know a couple keywords and you say those couple keywords. That could be good. It could also be bad, you know, um, because you're using those keywords interchangeably with something that you don't understand. Mm. Um, I think this is the problem is that we, we, at least this is the problem I'm facing. People will use keywords in, in a sentence. And so you think, okay, this dude knows, or this, this woman knows, um, let's, let's have this conversation and it's the, that's the only thing they know. And then, and then you have to go back and, and figure out what, where does our knowledge stop and where do you have to then increase the capacity and then where can you slot in to actually get something moving? And, and I think this is a difficult part, especially if you think about, OK, there's disastrous management. I think it should belong in everything. I think you should, as a household, have an emergency plan for a fire. I think as as a, as a community, you should have a plan together. As a government, then you should incorporate the community plan. I think disastrous management um, or risk reduction is should be ubiquitous everywhere. Um, And I I think when you look at uh, businesses with, like, I'll fall back to what I know. Oil field is really big on DRR, mostly Uh because it's so dangerous. Uh But I think that everybody should have DRR as part of their lexicon. And there should be a risk reduction person for absolutely every job, like you would have security. And I think that, Bringing that language to everybody so everybody can get on the same page, I think that's vital. So I I almost wish that less taxonomy was being propagated forward and people would just get on the same page.
0: Mm. And agree on a set standard of of words that means certain things and people can use that, right? Yes. Because right. it's
1: really difficult to have these conversations with people. And I mean, I'm coming from academia now, back mm-hmm. to private sector. well, no, I'm working in the humanitarian sector. It's not private sector, but I'm working back into like I'm working, making it practical. And I think academia has some great um brain trust to to pull from. However, sometimes they move the brain trust moves too quickly for the practical application. So mm-hmm. it doesn't it doesn't um so your traction is actually making you go in circles, as opposed to forward.
0: Hmm. Tell us about um, FOA, and just for for those of us who don't know, uh, define it for us and let us know what you do.
1: Uh, okay, so I currently work for the Food and Agriculture Organization of the, U- the United Nations, and it it is sort of a sub company. Basically, their sole focus is food security and agriculture. And um, I currently was brought on to look at community-based disaster risk management and how to help civil protection and the Ministry of Agriculture to promote um, disaster risk management and climate change adaptation. First, climate change management um, is—I'm putting them kind of together. But they're kind of—they're kind of in sync, but longer time frames. So first. The community we were trying to get them to actually do a sort of self-reflection of what their risk is um, what is your risk present what do you see and then myself comes in and says okay this is how what we see and then together we build a community-based risk reduction plan um, and so this was started prior to my arrival and so i'm just helping them kind of come forward and then this is funded by the green climate fund Um, So there's a lot of other organizations that kind of feed into this as well. So we all take different areas and together we feed into the system. Um, So other UN organizations kind of help out. And so it starts with something very small, like just putting drainage in a road or uh, water. Actually, a lot of these villages don't have uh, potable water like being pumped into so they have to go walk five miles to get to get um, water uh, when it's dry so bringing in a water tank or or strong winds if you're on a hilltop what do you need to do can you build shelters for your for your animals or you know keeping silos dry um, because they self-propagate seeds so it's small things like that over the long Mm. term where if they do have uh, an event, let's say they do have a flooding event, and they built a silo that's one story, or one story off the ground, then mm. they no longer have to worry about their their food source becoming um, wet or their seeds becoming right. wet or washing away. And so then that allows them to then implement better technologies for climate smart agriculture.
0: Right. So that's so cool. you
1: so you have to you have to help them reduce their risk. In one area, so they can sort of capitalize on another area. If you're always worried about being hungry, you're you're not you're not going to do something um, different.
0: Yeah, and that's that's what I really was looking forward to hearing you talk about today was about the climate change and the impact yeah. on extremes, and really how yeah. communities, especially in developing nations, um, need to respond to reduce that risk. Practical yeah. applications. Can you give us? Some more examples of things that your organization is doing
1: oh they're doing quite a bit um i think one thing that the sendai framework and unisdr they're trying to do is they're trying to increase capacity they're trying to be able to mobilize nations to be able to respond because um as you said it's a developing country Uh, other places have already done these things and have implemented x y or whatever it is that they've done but even developing countries are having a hard time putting all this into effect because it's piecemeal you don't you you have to start small and then you have to build it up but sometimes some of these projects take years right Mm -hmm. to to increase the capacity of of for disastrous management The, the will is there however you have competing priorities so you, so if there is no budget, it is very difficult to implement. So let's say we bring in water tanks and the water tanks, and actually people do do this. I think uh, IOM actually has brought in a water tanks and USAID and DFAT, um, they, they've all done really good work. And we're trying to do this as a coordinated body. Um, and I think that's the most important part is you have to do this as a coordinated body. You cannot do any of this work in isolation. Um, and then Oxfam has done really great work uh, during the Easter floods. They they came in and they mobilized a lot of local actors. Um, and I think that is key. As an international body, it's really important that we capacitate those in-house. And um, back to the language problem. I speak English. Uh, Tetum is what's predominantly spoken here. Um, and... I can't tell somebody what to do in English and and have it reciprocated in Tetum. Um, so either I get on board with Tetum, or you capacitate somebody here who's going to stay all the time. And since I'm here as an advisor, I'm going to leave. So that is actually what we're we're, we're doing. It's our, our biggest projects here: are capacitating the locals to be able to one understand the risk because I think awareness is key. Hmm. Um, and two, to be able to respond to the risk. Now, the response usually takes funding or some sort of uh, key key insight. And I think this is the, the hardest thing to translate um, because you can be aware of what you're doing and how you're doing it and mitigate that. But it, back to being a household, a community, and then a government, if you all are not working in the same vein, then only one person... If only one household is doing it, then then you're you're never really going to move forward. So it has to be in mass, um, and so that's the biggest work that we're doing here is moving as as a cohesive body together.
0: Mm. Mm. I was going to ask you about disaster mitigation and, and new methods and strategies. You know that um, that that your organization is using and that you see being done in the industry, but that that really answers that uh, that things are being put in place. So you're in Southeast Asia?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yep. Okay. Where else have you been?
1: Bangladesh. So I worked at the world's largest refugee camp uh, in Cox's Bazaar. And uh, <laughs> this is the basis of my thesis. I wrote a children's book on landslides, and it's basically started with as a flip book um, because uh, it's really – okay, so the Rohingya refugees um, – they got the short end of the stick uh, and, and we can speak a lot about who and what they are and how, where they came from. Um, but one thing that they were they don't really have is a written language. It's very an oral language. Mm. Um, and so how do you explain physics and chemistry and uh, landslide propagation uh, to, to a, a population that doesn't uh, that doesn't have a written language? So that was very difficult um, to to, be, to bring awareness how do you bring awareness to, to this uh. population um, children were had died of, of landslides because what they would do, they would do well the geology in this area was quaternary sands and clays deposited from glaciers from the well glacier deposits they're not glacier deposits but as the glacier eats away at the Himalayas and the Himalayas actually get all these rain events this is kind of the the, the Delta for the Himalayas. And so this land is not very, it's, it's, um, it's not rock, right? It's headed towards a rock, but it's not rock. So it's very sandy, very silty. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as you excavate like a sand dune, um, it's more tied than a sand dune. But like when you play in a sand dune and you excavate the bottom of it, the top is going to slough down.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and so as they're building their shelters and building and getting sand for sandbags to be able to, to create a, a steady foundation, they were creating these holes which would stay open, but then slight movement would cause them to collapse. And children were playing in them because they were cool um. compared to temperatures outside. And um. so unfortunately, we had a couple lost of lives. Um, and then we were ke- we kept on having landside issues, and so this was why I was brought in. And so, how do you bring awareness to this population? How do you how do you tell? I mean, you can't just tell them don't do this. They're doing this for the mm. survival, right? Yeah. Um, and also, they they were prioritizing other aspects of their lives. They, they this was like the most minor thing that just left a genocide right. event. And I'm gonna tell you, I mean, people would stop you, and they had. No qualms about telling you what they left and how thankful that they were there with and you were helping them, which puts it all into perspective, because sometimes when we do these disaster risk management plans or risk reduction ideas, we really have to take into account who we're working with. And and context, I think, if anything, is probably more important than your risk, because if you don't address your context, your risk will never be addressed. Um, so I spent about a month talking and working with community and UNHCR, the protection, uh, air, the community-based protection, I will say second to none. Um, working with them was absolutely fantastic. Um, and, they, and they provided me with translators because we would have to translate from the Rohingya language to ba- Bangla and then back to English. Uh, and so it was kind of, you know, so, so that was added to the confusion. Um, and so I thought pictures we how do you explain landslides pictures and so I uh, wrote this landslide book basically on the premise that if you took a flip book and you like moved it really quickly you would see Mm. how a landslide would propagate so tension cracks would show up okay what did you do here and then it started raining and the tension cracks started getting bigger and bigger and then as you flipped it then the you know then I, I sort of uh, anthropomorphize the, the mountain so the mountain that could walk the tension cracks led to feet and the feet actually caused the, the mountain to step away from its mother mountain and, uh. and move move away um and i i put things that were occurring in the camp you know we, we were making sandbags so i made it sort of relevant um because the rohingya are muslim you can't really put uh, people like you can't make people into it that's kind right. of kind of a tree so I had to kind of play into those things and uh, because of it's not a written language um then I had to train storytellers about this so then I like trained them uh-huh. on on slides uh, so it became a big process because I ultimately i was going to leave and i need to leave this knowledge behind so i i trained like 350 people on how to read the story and then uh propagated it through a population of 1 million people uh and so then we reduced landslide is that
0: all storytelling
1: (laughs) you know And and then i wrote books on uh flooding and uh you know how a flood doesn't know its own strength so it's an ox and so like the strength of a ox. So so make it relatable. So they know what a ox is and they know a ox is strong or or water right. buffalo, which by the way are amazing. I'm obsessed with water buffaloes after that. Um, so uh, so it's it's about uh, things don't need to be complicated. Things can be as simple as a story. Right. You just have to make it relevant.
0: So your PhD was around the what the outcomes of creating this this flipbook?
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's it's about how measuring Measuring how awareness change can lead to mm-hmm. a, an effective action. Um, right. uh, and in this case, because I was embedded into UNHCR and UNHCR was doing the camp management. We moved in mass. I was at the ground level with communities and I was sitting playing with children. Um, and then to reinforce that, I also made a board game and we made a play to like, to to so it became knowledge and action. And then I was at, um, decision-making level, making policy. Um, where can we build, don't build here because it's flooding. And then and then using my remote sensing knowledge to actually start working with planners. And then it was both, both ways. The same information I was passing down, I was passing up. And together in mass, we were working. So I measured their awareness prior. Now it sounds clinical, so bear with me. So I measured awareness prior and I measured their awareness afterwards. Now, awareness is great. You know something is occurring and you know something is is there, present in your space, but now do you understand your role and its role in that space? And so then I measured understanding. And then from understanding, once we hit sort of a critical understanding point, then we got action and so uh the refugees got my whatsapp number and they started texting me pictures and these pictures were of all these potentially risky hazardous situations and then i made them a how-to guide okay you're seeing this and then i would draw on them and then i i Gave them a kind of a chart, so they started becoming the community uh, a practice, and they were the like the focal point experts in each camp. I in seventeen camps, I primarily worked in nine, and then it started growing and growing, and more camps were like, well, we want to do this as well, um, and more people in these camps. So then it sort of self-propagated, and so instead of me pushing, it was them pushing me for more information, um, and so I measured that, and then I measured how things changed, and and what were the what was kind of what was a change. And I think it wasn't until like certain rain events and they were new to this area. So they didn't, none of them had really experienced this. And so just to, to be able to state they so they didn't believe nonsense existed until the first rain event. And then they were seeing, Oh, what is this? This is, this is, we don't like this. This is the, you know, we're losing things because of this. Uh, uh, and so, uh, that you kind of need something to prod them a little bit or prod community a little bit. And once that prod came, then you need the community to always engage or have somebody, you know, not it's, it's, like, it's like anything, your group of friends. There's always somebody who's more interested. You want that person. You want to take that person and then really indoctrinate them into DRR.
0: I think that's so brilliant. So brilliant. So awareness impacts action. Mm-hmm. and use simple tools because language they didn't have a written language so the flip book and the storybooks and then a board game and it went from training 350 people to impacting a million people
1: mm-hmm. and then
0: from one camp to 17 um, and they they ended up with the user-generated content sending you messages yeah. and and then yeah. pushing you and them owning it driving it yep. responding so the action came because of the awareness and implementing yeah. it wow yeah. really want to commend you for the impact that you've had that's incredible
1: I gotta say, it was tough. I mean, it was it was it was hard, and it was one of those things where it's hard to see the forest for the trees. You think mm-hmm. you're doing something, but it isn't until they respond back mm-hmm. that you're like, "Okay, I did something." You know, like you know that all the headaches and like, for, I mean, language barriers uh, are no joke. Uh, they do impact your work, and it can be very very frustrating. So it's super motivating for having the community want to to have you. Like they want you to sit down and be like, nope, we don't understand that. But let's find a different let's find a different way together.
0: Wonderful. So, Marina, just as we as we wrap up, and this has been really interesting, and I hope that our our students were taking notes as you were talking, because I've got a I've got a page for right here of notes from you talking. For someone that wanted to get into um, really looking at climate change, adaption, and reducing yeah. disaster risk. What some of the things that people people could put in place, or experiences they could have, to help them pursue a career in that area?
1: I think, I think these these both these topics are very broad. I think that in my experience, people with 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 a subject matter expertise in let's say, I, in my case, it's landslides. In somebody else's case, mm. it could be uh, hurricanes or, or alert protocols or early warning system protocols. I think it's much better to have an expertise in one aspect of it, and then that feeds into the rest.
0: Sometimes
1: Mm. it's really difficult to get your point across when it's such a broad topic that if you want to do this work, I mean, you can take anything. I mean, you name a subject, you can become a DRR, and a a DRR and climate change will affect it. Take that anything and see how it does affect it, and then figure out how it can't. go and work backwards and 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 then and then how it can't is huge because there's the technical aspect there is the there's just the mechanics aspect there's a community aspect i do technical communication i think that is a subject matter that we need to get behind so much more because you can't have awareness until you can communicate it and i think as scientists we do such a poor poor job of speaking to communities i mean even as scientists People don't want to hear about landslides because you know it's not sexy and they don't find it interesting because it's not their subject matter. So taking technical communication and making it relevant, I think for me. Who- yes technical science is very important but there's a lot of people who do it there are less people who do technical communication and i, I would encourage a lot of people to look at how to make science relevant to DRR and, C- and climate change ad- adaptation i think i think it's absolutely key and it's not even talked about like i'm getting i'm having a hard time being published because it's not relevant to most people it's not science it's not you know sa- sciency enough for journals and it's too technical for communication, people. So, how do you communicate? And I think this is—I think this is an open sore that needs to be um, bandaged and actually such a close.
0: Great, great opportunity for people to make a real difference. Yeah. Marina, really want to thank you for sharing your experiences, sharing your PhD in the project, sharing your thinking on this, and thank you for getting up early with the rooster to um, to share this with us from where you are. Um, all the very, very best. For the future and thanks for being with us
1: thank you so much for having me and reaching out i really appreciate it i mean i always get a kick out of talking of um about what i do um and i appreciate it thank you very much